Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Sam Lundgren grew up on Whidbey Island in Washington's Puget Sound. He spent summers working aboard an Alaskan commercial salmon saner while studying journalism in college. After obtaining his master's degree in environmental journalism, his thesis project about the controversial effects of steelhead hatcheries launched his career as an outdoors writer. Soon he was contributing to the Drake, Gray Sporting Journal, Fly Rod and Reel, Stonefly, Bugle, and the Flyfish Journal. Sam spent the last five years as the editor of Backcountry Journal, the quarterly membership magazine of backcountry hunters and anglers, and recently joined the Meat Eater editorial team as a writer and editor with an emphasis on fishing and conservation. In this episode of Anchored, Sam and I sit down to discuss commercial fishing, eating fish, and the harsh realities of catch-and-release fishing. Born in Seattle, Washington, and lived there with my family until I was two, and then we moved to Whidbey Island, which is about an hour and a half north of Seattle, out in Puget Sound. Oh, okay, so you stayed in Washington? Yep. And then what's the family fishing story? Did your parents, I mean, it's so cliche, right? But did your parents fish? Yeah, absolutely. My dad's from Indiana originally, but always has been a, just a diehard fisherman. He traveled with his friend all the way up to Alaska, uh, driving from Indiana when he was in college and, and did commercial fishing for a summer. And oh. yeah, and then he came back to Indiana, <clears throat> met my mom and told her all about Alaska promised he'd take her up there someday and they ended up going up there on their honeymoon but they settled in washington as kind of a happy medium between alaska and indiana 
Okay, now everyone would have just heard me say, oh, and they're like, oh, she's got an opinion on commercial fishing. I did that because <laughs> you have a background in commercial fishing. I do. And I just you just told me that the other night. So, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get caught up to that point, but well, what happens next in, in your timeline? Well, I just, I grew up fishing constantly with my dad. Uh, he gave me the middle name, Hunter. And so I kind of enforced some of that stuff on me, but he was taking me out mooching for salmon before I could walk. What about in high school? Were you fishing all throughout school? Yeah, fished all the time. One of my one of my favorite moments in high school was the principal of the school walking me into my first period uh, an hour late for school because we'd missed the tide. He'd been out fishing lingcod with me and my dad. No kidding. <laughs> he caught a he caught a big old lingcod and we you know stuck it out a little bit longer as is often the case and and so we drove to school and he walked me to my first period and. And just kind of did the the Jedi mind trick, like he is excused. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> these are not the drones you're looking for. <laughs> did, that, did that like carry on throughout your years? I mean, did you go to college and have like minded professors? Yeah, I definitely had professors I fished with in college. Right, for sure. I mean, I'm going to admit I, I did as well. Yeah, and. I mean, I got off, I got away with murder, and my grades were excellent. And we just like we didn't fish together, but we traded off info. Yeah. So, did you get away with some stuff that way? Uh, in high school, I definitely did. Um, you know, Whidbey Island is you know obviously surrounded by water. It's a huge fishing culture. I fished with maybe a half dozen of my my teachers in high school, and definitely got away with a lot of stuff. My friends and I would hunt ducks after school, and this was back before a lot of the you know, the craziness. And we, you know, we got away with keeping our shotguns in the back of our trucks just because they knew we were going out to the swamp after school. God, and, and this uh, isn't like 50 years ago. How old are you, Sam? I'm 30. Oh, oh my gosh, you're so young. So this is like <laughs> yesterday, really. Yeah. But it was, you know, a lot more rural back then. And it was a little bit before everything got so got so crazy with all the shootings and everything. But they just knew we were the ones who were the least likely to get in trouble because <laughs> yeah. we were just going around slopping around in the swamps after school, just trying to shoot ducks or chase salmon, steelhead. My kind of people. Yeah. What did you take in college? Journalism. Okay, which makes sense. Yeah. We're currently sitting in the Meat Eater office in Montana, and also we'll, we'll get people caught up to, to today and where you're at in your career. Sure. But that doesn't surprise me that you took journalism. Yeah. And actually, you're my editor, so I'm really thankful that you took journalism. <laughs> in our meeting yesterday, I was like, so are your people qualified? Do they know what an Oxford comma is? You know what I mean? I want to know these things. And they're like, yes, he's qualified. Stop freaking out about your writing. Um, well, that's great. Okay. I'm assuming you stayed in Washington when you went to college? Yeah, I went to Gonzaga University in Spokane, so other side of Washington. Did a ton of fishing. I had my canoe out there with me for a lot of that time and would sneak out. There's just all sorts of cool fisheries around Spokane, a lot of neat little lakes in the Scablands to the south, a lot of rivers, and you know, you've got Idaho and Montana huh. right there. Um, so that was great. Had more professors that I fished with in, of course. <laughs> in college. So my after my junior year of college, I landed a job on a commercial salmon saner out of Cordova, Alaska. Now, did your dad help you with that, or did you just did you apply independently? Yeah, I applied independently. He didn't know anybody doing it at that time. It was a you know, through a friend of a friend and I knew somebody was leaving and called the skipper and asked if I could, you know, meet with him and talk to him and stuff. And he was from where I'm from. A lot of people in Western Washington uh, go up to Alaska in the, in the summers to commercial fish and do different stuff like that. So, but you as a recreational angler, a lot of recreational anglers are really against commercial fishermen. 
Yeah. You, you had it in your background. So what am I missing there? Why do commercial fishermen have such a bad rap? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a broad generalization, and I think you could say like hunters have a bad rap if you're if you're painting in broad strokes, um, which I you know I would push back against that statement as well because you know there's different people and there's bad actors in any group of people anywhere. Um, but if you're I working think, for an organization, how do you know it's the right one? Because I'm assuming you can be a good man working for a bad ship. Am I wrong with that? Sure, sure. Well, you know, Alaska does a very good job of managing their their fisheries. Um, they get a lot of good credit for that, and uh, it's it's very scientifically managed. You know, we it's on a day to day basis. Closures. They're flying around in airplanes, looking at the schools of salmon coming into Prince William Sound. You know, estimating those amount of fish, where they're going, whether they're wild stocks or hatchery stocks. And there's a lot of um, pink salmon hatcheries around Prince William Sound, and, and that was what we were primarily targeting was the hatchery returns. Oh, my gosh, I have so many questions. And I'm so I, sorry. I, I know. We're, we're, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of different ways we can go down this. But, okay. um, but I, you know, I, I had looked into the fishery. I was already you know, very involved in conservation at that point. To me, it's a sustainable fishery, and it's providing food for people around the world. It was also an opportunity for me to spend the summer in Alaska, you know, working hard and making a ton of money to help pay through, pay my way through college. It pays really well, doesn't it? It does. I know in, in Canada, and I am ignorant to this, so everybody will just have to excuse my ignorance. I'm, I'm here to learn. I believe from what I understand in Canada, there's like a, an unemployment insurance for people who are commercial fishermen. Mm. Now, I'm sure there's more to that, but I just remember when I used to go into like the Services Canada office, there'd be like a, a, bro, a, you know, a, a pamphlet or a paper that you'd fill out if you were a commercial fisherman and you were out of work. Do you guys have any sort of unemployment insurance as commercial fishermen in America? Or is it the sort of thing where it's truly just like you go and you make a bunch of money and then you go and do something else when you're off the rest of the year? More like that. There is unemployment, you know, sort of welfare and stuff here, but I was never aware of it. Fish specific. Fish specific. I for four years of my life, I was used to getting one big giant check. Right, and a, I'll, a I'll look. I'll, I will look this up. I'll get online, sure. and I actually didn't know we were going to go down this road, so I'm really not prepared to talk about it. But those are some of my favorite conversations. Yeah, absolutely, I will commit to looking more into it on the Canada side. But can I ask you some questions then about commercial fishing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you said that they send planes over to see where the fish are going, and you know, count who who is they. Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Okay, and then they share that information with the commercial anglers. Yeah, well, they use that to set the seasons, and then we we get the announcements over the radio or over the internet saying what areas are open for what periods. Okay. And so we would often, in mixed stock fisheries, we would often be day on, day off. We'd fish one day, closure the next, fish one day, closure the next. Okay. But when there was tons of fish, it would be just day on. I mean, I remember we did like an 18-day run one time when it was, you know, there's so many salmon that you couldn't possibly catch them all. But then, you know, there's also times where it's closed for three days when they're trying to let uh, a wild run return. So it's it's very, very tightly monitored. monitored. The catches every day are being sent to ADF&G. So they, they have a pretty pretty good idea what's going on. So they're not over-exploiting any of the particular stocks. Well, that's my next question. How can you tell if it's a hatchery run or if it's a wild run? You're not spotting adipose fins from the air. Yeah, and they don't clip them either, so oh, um, so there's really no way to, to know. Uh, I think, I believe Prince William Sound has 
four major aquaculture hatcheries that are you know primarily intended to provide for commercial fleets. And so the, the hatchery fish will, will tend to sort of conglomerate around those hatcheries. And they become pretty obvious at that point. I mean, I've been around those hatcheries on an opener when it looks like the surface of the water looks like popcorn because there's so many pink salmon just exploding all over the place. I think they, they can kind of tell in what direction those schools are headed and they know the run timing of the hatchery fish and they know the run timing of the wild fish returning to other different drainages. I wasn't prepared to talk about this either, clearly. I'm just I'm totally uh, I'm totally free balling here, but this is just based on my knowledge from spending four years up there. Yeah, and I mean it's great just to get a general idea and I can always branch out, you know, to somebody who specializes in that. Certainly. But, but what are the pink salmon used for? Is this all canning? Is it going overseas? Where 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 what do they use pink salmon for? I think it's delicious, but what is it used for? Yeah, it's it's definitely not getting filleted and laid out in pretty all pretty in American grocery stores. Pink, you know, doesn't have quite that meat quality and beautiful color that you see in sockeye or king or even coho. But it is used for a variety of food products, a lot of canning, and a lot of that is going overseas. I've I've heard it's used in like salmon cakes and for restaurants. I've heard it's used for shipped whole to Eastern Europe and certain places. I've also heard it's used for dog food. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've actually bought Colby dog food that's, yeah. that's made from pinks. I'm embarrassed that I don't know more specifically. One of my really good friends w- runs a seafood processing facility, and I know they handle a lot of pinks, and he could tell you more than you ever wanted to know yeah. about that. So, <laughs> Well, they do a I lot of dressing out. it up. Same with chum salmon. They'll smoke it up, you know, and it says, yeah. all it says is smoke salmon, but if you read the fine print, it's either chum or, or pink. I really enjoyed pink salmon. Oh, absolutely. I think that if we actually were to embrace those numbers and make some compromise, you know, have our palates make some compromise and eat more pink instead of maybe some of the other fish well, yeah, ones Sh- that are sensitive. Chinook are doing terribly mm-hmm. pretty much throughout their range right now. And so, yeah, it does seem like we could be exploiting them less because pinks are doing spectacular. Yeah, I mean, in Puget Sound, I remember just a couple of years ago, they had a record-breaking run. The last year I was up in Prince William Sound in Alaska, we had a record-breaking run. I mean, our boat alone caught like 1.3 million pounds of pinks throughout the pounds? summer. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. What you're doing right now is you are just planting the seed and you know I'm going to have to seek out somebody to talk about this yeah. in depth, right? Absolutely. Okay. I'm very interested. It is very interesting. Well, and it's interesting to me that I meet so many great people who are, who are keen fishermen today and, and conservationists and they're like, I was a commercial angler and I have no apologies for that. Uh, but then you hear, you know, people saying, "Oh, they're the devil." And I know, like what you said, there are good and there are bad parties on in, in everything in life. But mm-hmm. um, I would just like to find out a little bit more about, yeah, like what makes someone good. So it's like the bad ship poaching, or are they taking more? Are there ten? How many guys are on board ship? Uh, the ships I worked on are called salmon saners, and they typically have a crew of four. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to go around calling any any particular you know, group bad in, in this context. I think there are commercial fisheries that are selective and there are ones that are non-selective. Mm. So what we're doing with a purse seine is wrapping a big long net around mo- traveling schools of pink salmon. You suck up the net, haul it on board, then roll a big wad of fish up and over and into the hold. So we're pretty much 100% sure 
of what is coming into our hold every single time. And it's pretty much 99% pink salmon with the occasional sockeye, coho, or chum salmon mixed in there. And it's completely legal for us to take those and sell those as well. But, you know, if, if we were to catch something else that we weren't supposed to have, we would certainly turn it back. So would an unethical group throw nets down on fish they knew weren't pinks? Is that legal? Well, yeah. I, if they can take those species? Well, I, none of this, I mean, there, 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 weren't, there aren't kings in Prince William Sound in any, oh, okay. in any significant way. Um, we would fish sockeye and cohos and chums in situations where there were enough of them. But, you know, our bread and butter was pinks. But it's all open for commercial fishing. I think, you know, something that I struggle with a little bit is some fisheries necessarily kill the fish, such as gill nets, primarily because when they swim in, it tangles their gills and they die. And so you're bringing dead fish in. So if you were to catch... Like I know this has happened to friends of mine on the Copper River Delta, which is another fishery I did a little bit of, is uh, gill netting the the mouth of the Copper River. So I know guys who caught like steelhead, and you know people would catch chinook salmon, and, and they're well within their rights to sell those chinook. But when they're targeting sockeye, you know that's you know all of a sudden becomes a mixed stock fishery, and I think that's kind of the problem. And I think that may be more what you're referencing, mm-hmm. like at the mouth of the Skeena, which mm-hmm. feeds you know the bulkley and the babby and the kispiox and the, everything else that they're do- using non-selective methods and they're harvesting imperiled species at the same time that they're trying to capture species that are healthy but often like pinks and chums why even use gill nets then if there are so many other options i think That's we a need great to have question. i think we need to have impoundment traps everywhere personally yeah um and i will post an art a link to an article that i wrote about that but yeah, why? Why are gill nets even being used? It's it's traditional. Oh my god! Um, and, and, and that's and, that. oh, that's absolutely a bad answer. Um, but I mean, that's the answer you're going to give. You're going to get, and that's what the boats are designed for. That's what the oh, infrastructure is designed for. So you that's need what new boats, money, money, money. Yeah, but I mean, a, a a fish wheel or an impoundment trap doesn't even require a boat. So I, uh, I, I tend to agree with you that, um, if we're going to continue to select to, and I believe strongly that we should still be harvesting wild salmon where it is possible because it's, because people are still going to want to eat salmon and I'd sure as hell rather them eat wild salmon than farm salmon, because Mm -hmm. I think farming salmon is creating way more problems than wild harvested fish, Mm -hmm. wild harvesting salmon it you know pre- provides just an incredible incredibly vibrant lifestyle and economy for most for much of Alaska that I think um our country would be the poorer without uh you know provided opportunities for kids like me to go up there and you know make tens of thousands of dollars in the summer and pay for college and and it provides local communities you know a resource to build from and like a reason for people to live and where they live on these little islands in southeast Alaska. So I think it's a I think it's a good thing. I just think, you know, we need to be conscientious of our of the effects it's having and I think some particular fisheries more so than others are are having um negative ecological effects and I think, you know, gill netting river mouths, you know, while I've done it, I have many friends who who do it, and I hope they're not listening right now. But uh, I think I think it's something we could we could move away from towards more selective methods like beach seining or um, 
fish wheels because you know with fish wheels they're sitting there alive still in the river and you you know and like if mouth of the skeena for example like people could just pull a steelhead out that they catch you know even clip them i mean or you know mark them with like a a pit tag you know for research purposes and turn them loose while taking their desired quarry and then be in a fresher state because it's still alive when they're pulling it pulling it out instead of being dead for an hour lying in the water like out of a gill net so there's there's things we can do but uh, i'm strongly supportive of commercial fishing and i think uh salmon's one of the best things you can eat it's healthy people love it and i think we need to provide opportunities for people to to buy it did you ever think to yourself should i be guiding in alaska or doing commercial fishing in alaska because i know they pay a lot different <laughs> yeah they, they do pay a lot different and I what was, is minimum wage for an alaskan guide oh man i have no idea it's something i mean i'm sure it's based on tips so it's probably hard to and i have a ton of friends who've done it and you know go up and make five to ten thousand in a summer the biggest summer i ever had uh salmon staining i made fifty four thousand in the span of two and a half months so it's a pretty big pretty big disparity it's pretty funny uh the first summer i got up there i'd met with the captain beforehand when he hired me and i flew into the cordova airport and i think i had five fishing rods with me and my dad had warned me that his skipper had said, oh, it's bad luck to have a sport rod on a commercial boat. Because there still is that animosity today. My skipper didn't care, but he was just laughing at it. He's like, oh, after this summer, you're not going to want to mess around with those sticks anymore <laughs> after, you, after you learn how easy it is to catch them all at once. And, he's, and then he, I think he said, or maybe you're going to hate commercial fishing and just go back to sport fishing. And I and I think it was the end of my fourth summer up there that he's like, man, I, you just, you just like fish, don't right. you? <laughs> you just like fishing in all forms, and I think that was the that was the case because I was using commercial fishing to create an opportunity for myself just to be in Alaska exploring all summer, and we were out in incredibly beautiful wild places. Prince William Sound is just incredibly stunning with you know the giant mountains the whole chugach range basically just starts at water level uh there's big glaciers uh we would see humpback whales every day we would see black bears every day after we were done fishing pretty much every day we'd go anchor up in a little cove somewhere and i'd pretty much always jig for halibut before going to bed or cast an eight weight off the back deck for cohos and pinks but after i finished uh, my undergraduate degree because I was making so much money commercial fishing and loving it and enjoying that lifestyle, I I decided to go straight into grad school. I felt like my undergraduate journalism degree provided me a very good baseline, but it, w- it was kind of an education in how to work in a daily newsroom. And so, you know, I started college right as the market collapsed and newspapers were dropping like flies around the country every guest speaker we had was like, run for the hills, kids, go be a lawyer. There's never, there's no gonna, not going to be any jobs in journalism. <laughs> and you know, that, that definitely got to me. And so by the end of that education, I was like, well, I know how to be a newspaper reporter, but I also know that I don't want to work at a newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I heard about a cool graduate degree at the University of Montana in Missoula, it's called Environmental Journalism and Natural Resource Science. And apologies if I got that backwards because I can never never have been able to keep it straight. What does that mean in real life jobs? Yeah, it's it's it was kind of like it was a very small program. There was only eight people in my contingent 
and it kind of was what you wanted to make of it to a certain degree. It was kind of how to be a science writer or an environmental environment reporter. And I sort of took that to down the road of more like a conservation writer, outdoors writer, and used the opportunity to work with a lot of incredible writing professors and science professors. I, I used that to to that time to craft my own skills in personal narrative for the outdoors and how that relates to conservation. Through a lot of that time, I was interning at Bugle Magazine at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and I've, I've always been really into magazines, and I feel like I learned how to read, reading Field and Stream, and have always really liked that format and appreciated what it's lent to the sporting community and culture in, in North America. So that was kind of the direction I took it. I pretty soon into that master's degree, I started freelance writing for fly fishing magazines primarily. And yeah, went from there. Where did you go? You went to work at Backcountry? Yeah, so I, I finished my master's. I did one more summer in Alaska and then was just kind of floating after that. I road tripped all over the West. For I drove back from Alaska, road tripped all over the West for a while. I was working on, I, I got a book contract to expand my master's thesis, which was about um, salmon steelhead hatcheries and the the effect that management style has had on the recovery of wild fisheries. Uh, we'll come whoa. back to that. Okay, <laughs> we'll come back to that. We'll put a pin in it. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I knew. I knew. I saw your eyes lighting up as I said that. So yeah. Well, that 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 deserves its own sidebar. Okay. Um, I'll wait patiently. Yeah, but I was also I was also messing around with a business plan to start a hunting and fishing magazine and. At that time, I, I told the people, I, the, the editors I worked with at Bugle about that project, and um, a man named Lan Tawney had just been hired as the executive director of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. It was very small back then. Um, I think he was the third employee or something like that. Oh, he's still there. Yeah, he is. He's the CEO yeah. uh, now, very close friend of mine. But what, he what, heard what is, about my project and hit me up and asked me if I wanted to run Backcountry Journal. What do they do? Yeah, Backcountry Besides Hunters and Anglers everything. is a is a 501c3 nonprofit um, dedicated to public land and water issues. So functionally what that means is, you know, a few years ago where we really made our stand, made our name was when um, public land divestiture was a hot topic in Congress and in, in state houses around the country where where states were demanding that the federal government give them the federal lands within their borders. This was primarily coming from Utah, but other other states in the West that have large federal holdings were asking, were demanding the federal government turn over some of those lands to the states. Um, we we and most of the sporting community felt like that was a very bad idea because the states that were were leading this effort, like Utah, had you know been given enormous state land grants at statehood, as had all Western states, and they rapidly sold all of it off and continue to do so. Um, you know, while Utah was asking for these public land, these federal public lands, they were actively selling state lands. And so we were concerned, the, the concern, broadly speaking, in the conservation community was that as soon as they got these federal lands, they probably wouldn't be able to pay to manage them. There's studies that suggest as much, and they would get rid of them, and Americans would be the less without access to our wild public places. So that was a major, major win for 
BHA knocking that back along with numerous partners in this group. But we've we've gone on to work on all sorts of of things from you know the the pebble mine in Bristol Bay to trying to prevent oil and gas exploration in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, They're in Canada taking, now. Yeah, yeah. We have chap- very very vibrant chapters in in British Columbia and Alberta. Uh, the Alberta coordinator has been very involved in in getting a new wilderness designation, the Bighorns, which is very cool to see. There's been a lot of a lot of stuff going on in BC, but there it's going on all over the country. There's chapters in 39 states now. And, uh, you know, we're working, they're working on everything from uh, lake access for duck hunters in Louisiana to keeping public routes open in Idaho to stream access in New Mexico. Uh, it's, it's all over the place. And it really grew like wildfire in the time that I was there. I was hired, when I was hired, I was, I was a freelance contractor at first, but there was, I think, four employees, and now there's something like 32 or 33. There was about 1,000 members when I started, and they're creeping up on 30,000 now. And it's, it's really changed, and it was just a really inspiring thing to be part of, uh, to see the leadership from land and a number of other people there. And, yeah, I absolutely treasured my time there it was really fun. I made 20 issues of Backcountry Journal before these meat eater folks convinced me to <laughs> to come over here and try something new. And uh, it was an amazing learning experience. <clears throat> I was hired as just you know the kid who could make a magazine for a thousand bucks into something that turned into a real career. And um, I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. And it was just a heck of a lot of fun too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So did you put your book on hold then? I did. Uh, oh, what a whirlwind that would have been. Yeah, I, I, that's one of my biggest regrets in life that I never finished it. But um, you can go back to it, can't I you? I could. Everything's changed though, and it was very, it was very personality driven. Your book? Yeah. With hatcheries? Yeah. Are I, you I, for or against or is it not quite that simple? <clears throat> it's not that quite that simple. I didn't think so. Yeah, I, I'd say I'd say with Steelhead it's becoming quite that simple. Mm-hmm. But my masters I'd say somewhat stupidly included salmon as well. And I think that's, mm, that's a lot more a blurry. Broad, yeah. I think it's a lot more blurry. The, because the, there there are times where hatcheries Make sense for salmon runs. Yeah, from what I understand, they do. there's times when they make sense for steelhead runs, and in, in, um, in the in the for conservation, mm. uh, uh, genetic conservation is what I was I think. Um, but yeah, so like the the pink salmon hatcheries around Prince William Sound that we fished, you know, though there's there's basically no impact on wild fisheries there. They're they're terminal harvest fisheries because pinks don't need any fresh water in their juvenile stages, many, many pinks, I mean, they, they, they need to lay eggs in fresh water, but then pretty much as soon as a, a pink salmon fry hatches out of the egg, it flushes straight out to the ocean. 
And so there's very little interaction. So steelhead will spend up to four years in freshwater before going out to the ocean sometimes. Same with kings. And so there's a lot more interplay in the freshwater environment at an early stage with with those larger species but pinks and, and chums i mean i've seen i've seen chum salmon like literally spawning in salt water well that's what i was going to say so on the dean our lodge was right on on the ocean there it was brackish and chum were spawning right in the estuary yeah so where those hatcheries were is right on the ocean there's like a, a creek that they're drawing water off of into right. ponds Same to thing. to raise them up and then they release them straight into the ocean and then when they come back they're just milling around in a bay yeah i'm sure there's strays yeah i'm sure some of them are going up adjacent creeks but they're mostly there getting wiped up by uh salmon seiners mm. and they do and, and insane boats do a very good job of of getting all the fish when they want to and so i i feel like that's different that they're not that they're not sharing the spawning grounds, they're not sharing the the rearing grounds in the same way. I've read oh, dozens and dozens of studies about steelhead and how hatcheries have had myriad effects on wild steelhead recovery, and I have a pretty hard time being supportive of that. I come at most of these things. I, I see my role in this industry as a journalist and as a you know someone who translates things but if you're asking me personally um i think hatcheries by and large have had have you know they were there they were there as a means to try to recover steelhead but i I believe they've they've actually served to suppress the recovery of of wild steelhead um montana now we're in montana right now even montana had hatcheries had had yeah and then what happened to the truck populations when they got rid of those hatcheries montana is actually a fascinating case study and i referenced Mm -hmm. this in my in my thesis there was a a fisheries biologist who in the late 70s um did a study on the madison which is is nicely broken out by some dams so they could do tests on different segments and what they found um over several years was that you know Montana was aggressively stocking its trout rivers at the time and getting relatively low return on investment from that they were dumping just they were dumping tens of thousands and millions of trout all over the state but the fisheries still weren't doing very well mm-hmm. and the, and so he did a he did a study that ultimately showed that um, the fisheries were stronger in areas where they allowed wild breeding Obviously, these are non-native fish, rainbows and browns, but where they allowed wild breeding and primarily catch and release. And then all of a sudden, they started having more fish, bigger fish, cooler fish too. You know, uh, uh, anything that comes out of a hatchery is going to be have a little bit stunted fins. It's a lot likely to do well in a native environment because hatcheries select for the fastest and brashest and most competitive fish, the one that gets to the little food pellet at the top of the pond, the fast, faster than the others. But in the wild, that's the fish that's going to get caught by the, by a, you know, a bigger predatory fish or an osprey, the fastest because they're not hiding well. And what this, what the study showed was that wild bred fish with a good catch and release program just do much better and so montana's always led the way in 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 wild trout management and many other states still aggressively stock their rivers and i I don't think it does very well i mean you can put a big brood stock fish in in there and so somebody can catch a a big slug but they're just not pretty and uh (laughs) and uh i think i think montana's really proved that 
wild fish with a with a strong catch and release ethic is is a much superior method of of managing trout they do stock uh lakes so there there are trout hatcheries in montana still but by and large the trout fisheries in montana i mean people don't come here to to fish in lakes they come here to fish in rivers and i I mean it's montana like it it speaks for itself sometimes i wish that more people did like fish i'm going to start doing more lake fishing because i feel like a lot of those lakes can handle stocking i mean especially if they were barren before no um and i think it would help to disperse some of the pressure absolutely it might be and and i like eating fish and some of those it depends on when what time of the year you catch them and you know what they're feeding on but there's some great tasting fish that come out of lakes oh absolutely and i and i eat fish all the time and i think many of those many of those fisheries i'm referencing around montana a lot of the biologists would rather you kill fish i i had a i had a game warden pat me on the back one time for killing a big trout out of the a big rainbow trout out of the missouri he's like oh great i'll never see people killing fish because it just makes room for other fish absolutely i mean the the missouri the tailwater stretch of the missouri has something like eight thousand trout per mile yeah so you know the more fish you remove the the more space they have and the larger and more healthy they'll be there it's it's different because then you jump over the hill to the blackfoot and you're lucky to have a thousand fish per mile so um you know there are richer and poorer systems and but do they factor that into bag limits per yeah, system? absolutely yeah so absolutely. you just have to read your synopsis yeah it's the same as canada absolutely i wasn't going to go down that road i wasn't going to go down any of these roads actually i just <laughs> was going to talk to you about montana winter trout tactics but i'm going to go down the road now um Eating fish, like why do you think, I think the most disturbing thing I've heard in the last, well no, this that's a blatant lie, I've heard a lot of disturbing things in the last year, but one of the more annoying things I've heard in the last year was when Ronella sat down with Tom Rosenbauer and they did that podcast on... Oh, I didn't hit, hear that one. I mean, obviously Ronella's great, Tom's great, right? But, I love Tom, he's such a nice guy. Yeah, they're, they're, both, they're, they're both excellent. They're oh, both, Steve too, in case you're listening. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but they're both pros, right? But it was like, it was the responses of so many people who were like, oh, or you know, Tom being like, I'm probably going to upset some people by talking about killing and eating fish. And I'm like, Tom, even if you do upset those people, who cares? We eat fish. Let them be upset. Well, that's Fishing like, is a blood sport. I, I want to talk about it because if we don't talk about it, people start to think that maybe we don't talk about it because it's, you know, maybe killing and eating fish is bad. I, I kind of want to go down that road here. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about that. And, you know, one of my favorite favorite moves is like pretending I'm about to release a trout in front of some fly fisherman friends and then clocking it with a rock. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, we call and, that the and, rock and, shampoo yeah, in my part of the world. <laughs> you say that yesterday. I love that. No, I mean, I catch and release probably 95% of the trout I catch. Why? Why? Because I just, I just go fishing a lot right. and I just go out after work and you know, I just, that's just I don't even think about it a, a, a lot a lot more often than actually killing fish I'm like I'm driving home being like what am I going to cook oh shit there's nothing in the fridge damn it why didn't I kill that 16 inch rainbow I just released and I feel foolish about it sometimes because I just usually I'm just so used to turning out a hook and letting a, a trout go free it's just kind of what you do and it's so deeply ingrained in our culture but I just I just think that's become a little bit outdated I think catch and release was an an ethic that arose out of a very real need when we were over exploiting a lot of our fisheries went back when people you know couldn't imagine 
the concept of what you caught a fish and you let it back go, you, you could eat that thing. So it, it came out of a very real need and develop, was developed in, 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 in Michigan, I believe, in the 50s. And um, I think the Osable Manistee, I don't know. But yeah, so some people started to suggest that. And I think it did a lot of good. I think there's a lot of fishermen in this country. And if we all kept every fish we caught, we would not have the vibrant fisheries, especially here in Montana. Well, especially if you're fishing all the time, right? Like if, if you're fishing as much as you do. It's, if, oof, God, when I was in my 20s, if I was keeping all my fish, we'd be in trouble. If everyone did that, right? But right. if you're keeping a fish, I mean, even if you're keeping It's a f- good for a lot of fisheries yeah. to, to, to have harvest. Any biologist will tell you that. There are certain... There are certain ones where, you know, for the amount, given the amount of pressure they receive, it's not beneficial to be removing certain fish, but in many, in many it is. And, and I think, I think fly fishermen to a certain degree went a little bit overboard with the, the catch and release thing. I think it's good. I think it's a good ethic. I think, I, th- I think it, it, com- it comes from a place of, 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 of love it's, yeah. it's it's very it's very good intentions and 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 yet and that that fish you know we were arguing about this yesterday how in in your piece about catch and release you were saying i i catch and release because i'm, I'm selfish because i'm selfish and and when i read that i i was like well yeah but are you as selfish as if you had killed that fish <laughs> I, I i really appreciated your point about the selfishness because it it certainly is there because like yeah you could you could not go fishing, and that fish wouldn't would have one less hole in its mouth. But your it's, argument was because my argument, just so people who haven't read the article know, my argument is not an argument. My stance is: listen, yes, people assume people associate me with steelhead because I am born and raised in BC. I release my steelhead because I legally have to. Yeah, people will see me holding a picture of a, of a chinook, and they'll be like, "Oh my gosh, you know, it's out of the water." And I'm like, "Yeah, because I ate it. <laughs> you know, there's a reason why it's out of the water. It has dead eye. Uh huh. It yeah, sure did. Dead. It had a lot of dead stuff going on. You know, and and I actually get really irritated about it. Same with like yeah. the fly fishing thing. You know, I spent so I still fish conventional gear. I still go to Australia. I still eat what I catch. I agree with you. By the way, I just would take it a step further. I really like. I really like. I appreciated the honesty in that story, and I think that's something we need a, a strong dose of. But but yeah, you were saying I I I you know catch and release because I'm selfish. I'm like, well, yeah, but wouldn't it be more selfish to kill that fish and not let it go about its go about its life? No, if I kill that fish for sustenance, if to eat from from me for my body to be able to be nourished. That's survival. I mean, yeah, okay, let's let's forget about the fact that I could go to the store and buy meat, which, by the way, I don't. Something I'm, still does have to I, die. I'm a stammered bastard. Yes, yeah, something <laughs> has to die, right, for me to live. So that is survival. I don't find that selfish. Hmm. I don't feel survival is as, I mean, yes, it's selfish by definition, but it's not as selfish as me doing it recreationally. Just because for fun? one is oh, yeah, for I life get that. and one I get is that. for enjoyment, right? I get that. Um, that's a very good point. With the steelhead, it's it's something I've thought about a great deal, too. And, you know, in the light of all these recent closures and reopenings in, in some places, like, you know, I grew up fishing the Skagit, which is a you know very famous steelhead fishery that was closed for 10 years. Um, and they've been reopening it. And there's been these big protests where people will do fish ins and go fish with, with a flies without hooks on this gadget to protest the the closure and it's very interesting i've thought a lot about that and about this current closure in idaho and you know above all else i want to i want to see steelhead persist 
And I know that I will continue to advocate on their behalf and donate to the organizations that are working on on recovering them. But, you know, one thing that I believe it was uh, the steelhead biologist, John McMillan, who you may know. Love John McMillan. Yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. What a guy. He's the, he's the, he's the person we need right now. I think it was John or his dad, Bill, who, mm-hmm. who told me that, you know, there aren't Atlantic salmon fishing groups on the East Coast. There aren't really Atlantic salmon fishermen in the United States because, you know, the Atlantic salmon vanished a century ago from the eastern seaboard we're probably further back than that and they have no advocates they have there there's some conservation efforts in place but they're mostly trying to save you know sturgeon and shad and things of that nature and you know they're, they're pretty they're effectively gone and and remember they used to have so many atlantic salmon they used to pitchfork them up and use them as fertilizer that's absolutely. why when i hear things about alaska and it's like oh there's so many fish i can see them it makes me think back to what it used to be like absolutely. back then. It's really scary. Absolutely. And I think we need to take those lessons and apply them to ecosystems that have not yet been overexploited. And so I'm very supportive of the extremely stringent commercial fishing regulations that ADF and G puts in place. But but going back to what I was I was saying, it's like I think on some level we at least to a certain at least to a certain point sport fishing for steelhead can have positive effects because it allows people to continue to interact with the animal they love the most and sure that's wrestling it nearly to death in in some situations it's not it's this is not clean and easy but i think fish need friends because you know there there's a lot of groups that will go up in arms about saving a spotted owl or a grizzly bear or dusky gopher frog, the one that was just in the Supreme Court. I actually they they probably don't have any clubs behind them. But those are those are things that people can see. And, and they have fur. Fur seems fur, to be Yeah, they're furry, wrong. they're cuddly. Fish are not very cuddly, I've tried. <laughs> and I, I, I think people would not know the dire straits that salmon and steelhead are in without sport fishermen and sport fishermen who care and there are very kind of macroeconomic effects that are leading to these declines i don't believe that it's fly fishermen that are putting steelhead extinct i think we need to be conscientious of our effect on the resource and and be and be open and fair about it that you know somewhere three to five percent of cotton release steelhead are not going to survive to spawn and you know it's it's just it's it's too bad we need to improve our methods to reduce that number but i believe that there are some elements of unregulated either high seas commercial fishing in washington there are some tribal fisheries that continue to kind of rape and pillage the last of the native steelhead by stretching gill nets all the way across the lower ends of the ho and the queets and a variety of rivers that i grew up fishing um that's sad to see that they're still, you know, marketing those and selling those. And, but I think there's also been a reaction to that from sport fishermen who, you know, have staged like protests and, and demonstrations in in front of restaurants that are serving wild steelhead and, and wild steelhead have, have largely disappeared from menus. Yeah. Public pressure goes a long way. It it does. And so it's for the best either, but it does go a long way. Yeah, it does. And so I think that's an important role that the, the fishermen can, can play. I mean, obviously it's a little bit hypocritical, but you know, they're, they're providing 
funds for research let, through let, fishing license dollars and, and yeah. conservation organizations. And, and so I, I think, you know, we need to know when to say enough is enough that we need to also step away from the water too. But it's a very important role we play as advocates on behalf of those fish. But, you know, another thing that my steelhead buddies are doing and a lot of people are talking about is, is kind of self-imposed even catch and release limits. So yeah, like catch your few, or I catch one and I go home. Exactly. My husband being a non-resident, he feels better catching three and then he lets me drag him home. Yeah. And so when I'm, when I'm with my friends, if somebody catches a fish, then they're just hanging out, making coffee for everybody Mm -hmm. or, you know, moving the boat while everyone else is swinging. And, and you just, you just kind of, you kind of bow out for that day. Do you think you need to catch fish to have that therapy on the river? Or do you think it's no. just being out there? I think it's I think it's being out there. I, I I really lose myself in fly fishing, and just hours will pass, and things will coalesce in my mind, and so I like that part of it. But I also just like walking riverbanks um, anywhere I go, even if I don't have a f- fishing rod. I'm always fi- I'm always gravitating towards rivers, and I feel like it's never changed since I was a little kid. I just like you know, chasing salamanders and seeing what's under rocks and, and trying to, you know, climb out on tree branches to look down in the water. So Mm -hmm. I don't think fishing has necessarily has to be involved for it to be a, like a beautiful and beneficial time on the river. But obviously that's what I like to do when I'm out there. Well, and it just makes sense why we do catch and release all the more, doesn't it? Because we just don't want to stop. Right. But I mean, I think uh, fly fishing at its core is, is naturalism. It's, it's, a respect for an understanding of a natural ecosystem and i think you improve your skills by improving your knowledge and understanding and i think a great way to do that is to not be fishing the whole time and to sit down and just watch the water and and be more conscious of my surroundings and that concludes this episode of anchored thank you for listening 